Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 16th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week we leave out some background noise. Because of a hardware failure, I'm using a notebook computer. Notebook computers are a lot quieter than desktop systems. I'll tell you the story of the hardware failure next week. This week, we've got another one of those visual programs. It's very difficult to do a visual program in a medium that's nothing but sound. So, once again, I'll be referring you to the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. As with all of the other applications in the Adobe CS3 suite, Deciding where to start with Photoshop was a huge challenge. There are so many new features and improvements in productivity, image editing, compositing, 3D in motion, that I knew I couldn't tell a comprehensive story about Photoshop. So I did what I've done with the other applications in the suite. I picked a few features to talk about. Stripping, panoramas, and weather fixers. And no, I don't mean that kind of stripper. The people who used to do magic with lith razor blades and red tape were called strippers. Today they're called compositors. They're the folks who combine words and photos and publications. They're the people who blocked out the backgrounds, merged two photos together into a single image. Stripping, as I mentioned, is now called compositing. And although it's a lot easier than it used to be when it required razor blades and ruby lith, and also a lot safer, it's still not an easy task. And that's why I'm particularly excited about one of the new features in Photoshop CS3. What you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website are two pictures from Inneswood Park. One is a picture of a trail, and it's an okay picture of the trail. The only problem is in the middle of the forest where there's a bridge, there's also a sidewalk. looks kind of like a roadway coming in from the left. Well, I'd like the roadway not to be there, or at least I'd like it not to be visible. Now, I could solve the problem in a couple of different ways. I could use the clone tool and clone grass over the path, but I decided I didn't want to do it that way. I decided what I'd rather do is put something in the foreground, so that it would obscure the view of the path. Leave the bridge, but obscure the path. Well, I had a picture of a flower that seemed like it might be a good choice, but I needed the flower by itself, and in the background of the flower picture, there was foliage from the flower. Where you have flowers, you have foliage. That's kind of a rule, I think. So I needed to get rid of the foliage. Select the flower, get rid of the foliage, and make it look as convincing as possible. Selecting the flower used to mean tediously drawing an outline around the flower. The flower's got a lot of sculpted edges, and getting a decent outline, whether you use a mouse or whether you use a digitizing pen, either way was difficult. It would have taken, at least it would have taken me, probably the better part of an hour to do that. 
and I wasn't about to spend the better part of an hour cutting out a flower. Well, the nice thing about the Quick Selection tool, which is one of the new tools in Adobe Photoshop CS3, is that in just a few seconds, literally under a minute, I had selected the flower, almost nothing but the flower, and almost the entire flower. There were a few little places here and there, which you'll see on the website, where I'd either gotten a little bit too much, got some of the foliage, or where the quick selection tool misjudged a bit and I didn't get all of the flower. Fixing that took maybe another 60 seconds, probably not even that, really. All I had to do was reduce the size of the brush and either add or delete areas that it had previously either selected or omitted. And it's really a lot like magic to watch the quick selection tool do its work. It guesses, no, it calculates edges with extreme precision. Once that was done, all I had to do was call on another feature that adjusts the edges because I didn't want a hard, sharp edge that wouldn't look natural. So by using a variety of functions, primarily feathering, I was able to reduce the outline around the flower. And then I noticed one other thing. The flower was really facing the wrong direction. And yes, flowers do face. When you take a picture of something, you generally want whatever it is to be facing into the picture. And I was going to put this flower on the left-hand side of the picture. It would be facing left, facing out of the picture. That's fine if that's the effect you want. That can provide some tension. But I didn't want tension. It's a nice, calm scene. So I flipped the flower, made it face the other way, put it in the corner, made a few additional changes, realized that the background was now just a little bit too sharp. If you have a sharp, well-focused flower in the foreground, the background is going to be a bit out of focus. A little Gaussian blur added to that, and bingo. Now, this isn't a perfect picture. As you look at it, you'll see there's still a little bit of an edge around the flower. It's just a bit of a fringe. That would need to be fixed if I were really going to do something with this image. But not bad for just a few minutes' work. Did you ever come back from vacation with a series of pictures and decide to paste those pictures together? Maybe you stood in one place and turned, taking half a dozen or more pictures to show, oh, for example, the Grand Canyon, or maybe the city square in Worthington. And you wanted to show it all in one picture. So in the past, you could do that with a razor blade and a lot of time. You could paste the pictures together. Well, to do something like this right, you really need to use a tripod. So I took a tripod, went to the city square in Worthington, and I took a total of 23 exposures. That's one every 15 degrees. And no, I didn't have to take 24, because if you divide 360 by 15, you get 24. I didn't have to take 24 images, because 0 and 360 are, of course, the same picture. So I needed 23 exposures. I brought those pictures back, and you'll see all 23 of them on the website, brought them back 
dumped them into Photoshop, told Photoshop, make a panorama. The resulting panorama is pieced together flawlessly. If you wanted to do something like this two or three years ago, you would have to buy a $100 program, maybe $150, maybe more. Now, this comes as part of what's in Photoshop. And take care when you visit the website. When you click the panorama to take a look at it, beware and be aware that it's 5,000 pixels wide. You're going to have to do a lot of horizontal scrolling, and it'll take a little while to download it. Photoshop is also a great weather fixer. Recently, we drove out to Amish country for the day, and I, of course, took the camera along. The day was cloudy, and there were occasional torrential downpours. We had dinner at the chalet in the valley, and I walked outside and took a picture of the sign. On the website, you'll see that picture. It's not a bad snapshot. Picture of the sign in the foreground, the chalet, the building in the background. But I noticed there were some problems with it. Specifically, it was not quite the color I remembered from the day. Even with the color balance on the camera set to cloudy day, the image still came out a little too blue for my taste and bluer than I remembered it. I wanted it to look a little more like a sunny day. So a little quick adjustment in Photoshop brought the color back to what I remembered. And then I noticed it was just a little crooked. The sign leaned to the left. The building leaned to the left. Buildings aren't supposed to lean, except for that one in Italy. Well, a bit of rotation straightened out the vertical. Of course, that meant I'd have to crop the picture later, but that took just a few seconds to make that correction. And then I started looking at the sign. Well, there were some problems with the sign. There was a scuff on the lower crossbar. Uh, it appeared that there had been another sign on the crossbar at one point. It had been removed, never painted over. Well, I wanted to fix that. And I noticed there was a big crack in the sign itself at the bottom, went through the wording. Now, that's not something you'd notice just glancing at the sign as you drove by, or even when you drove into the parking lot. wouldn't be a big deal. But because it was in the foreground of the picture, it had the main focus. I thought I really ought to fix that. And then there was the problem with the day itself. The sky was kind of a light gray. Yuck. That was pretty easy to fix, too. Again, with some of the cool new tools that are included in Photoshop, I was able to select the sky, remove the existing sky. So if I had had a picture of a bright blue sky with little fluffy clouds, I could have dropped that in. But I didn't have a picture of a bright blue sky with little fluffy clouds. Alien Skin Xenofex 2, Little Fluffy Clouds to the Rescue. What do you say? Alien Skin. These are people who make plugins for Photoshop and for other applications that use the Photoshop standard. Xenofex 2 is one of their series of plugins, and Little Fluffy Clouds is one of the plugins in the Xenofex 2 set. I picked an impossibly blue color for the sky added the clouds, dropped it into the picture, and then had to do just a little bit of touch-up work to take care of where white sky showed through some foliage. 
But when I got done, the result was really pretty nice. The color is dramatic. It looked like a bright, sunshiny day. Just really the way I remembered it. Now, a word about honesty in photography. It is possible to lie with photographs. It has been for years. It used to be harder. You needed a razor blade and an airbrush. But it's been done for a long time. Now, anybody can lie with photographs. Yes, there is an airplane flying by. The changes I made to this photo are trivial. They don't really affect the meaning. But it is important to remember that the camera never lies isn't a valid statement now, and in reality, it never was. Some of the new features in Photoshop remind me of what Arthur C. Clarke wrote back in 1961 in Profiles of the Future. He wrote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That pretty well sums up Adobe Photoshop CS3. Photoshop has always been the powerhouse application for photographers, but those powerful features came with a high price in time required to master them. Well, that is still true. If you want to be a Photoshop virtuoso, you're going to have to buy some books, attend some classes, or at least spend some time looking at some of the hundreds of online tutorials that explain how to use it. But if you want to work with your photographs and make them the best they can be, Photoshop is the way to go. Speaking of way to go, last weekend I thought I'd take the bus downtown. Via Calori was supposed to be going on, although rain threatened and eventually came. I live near High Street, and it's easy to find a stop for the High and Main Number 2 line. Now, unlike when I had a job downtown and rode the bus to work almost every day, the bus doesn't stop every couple of blocks once it's south of Fifth Avenue. Or maybe the local bus does, and it's only the express bus that doesn't. I don't remember. So I thought I'd get a quick and accurate answer from the Central Ohio Transit Authority's website. Problem started the instant I arrived at CODA's website. I've been using Opera as my primary browser for the past few weeks, and I'll tell you more about why I was doing that and why I restored Firefox as my primary browser, but not this week. In any event, I had been using Opera, and it seems that the folks in charge of CODA's website know about Internet Explorer, they know about Firefox, but they don't seem to know how to make the site work with Opera. The CODA website has a real-time feature. It'll show you where every one of their buses is at that exact moment. Neat idea. Click an icon for a bus, and you'll learn immediately which direction it's running and whether it's on time or not. As I read the instructions, I began to feel that the website writer apparently spends a little too much time with late-night television. Here's the copy. But, but wait, wait, there's, there's more. more. After, After you've, you've chosen, chosen a route, you, you can, can click, click on the Choose button. You will then be taken to the schedule screen of our trip pro application. From there, you can obtain current route schedule information. Okay, a little overblown, but it seemed like a good idea. I was interested in when the bus would be available. So I clicked the Choose button, and I was told that the page didn't exist. Okay, no problem. I know the High Main bus route. I know where it is. It's on High and Main Street. I live near High Street. I can find the bus stop. No big deal. Well, 
let's see where I might be able to get off the bus down in the vicinity of North Market. That's where I plan to go for Via Calori. And the site offers a bus stop finder. So I found several bus stops on High Street. Now, the information I figured I could find out if I clicked one of those bus stops would be which buses stopped there. I was interested in whether the number two bus actually stopped there. I thought it probably did, but I didn't know. So I clicked the icon. And the website could not find the page. So I thought maybe I'd try the PDF version of the route map. Unfortunately, that appears to be a scan of a paper map instead of being output from the electronic source, which would make it much sharper and easier to read, but it was at least readable. The route map shows the entire area, with downtown Columbus and the university area, on the reverse side. Well, the PDF has only one page. There wasn't a reverse side or a second page. For reasons known only to the designer, the second page is actually two additional files, one for downtown and one for the OSU campus area. Well, even once I downloaded that, it wasn't very useful either. So I gave it one more try. There is a trip planner. Now, one thing I noticed on the website is in the menu system, as you hover the mouse over one of the links, the link you're hovering over becomes almost invisible. Black on dark blue. Black on dark blue isn't very visible. But I did find the trip planner on the menu, and so I clicked it. Perhaps of no surprise to you at this point, the page was not found. I never did go downtown that day, and that, that really was okay, because rain and drawing on the street with chalk doesn't work out very well. So Via Calori was essentially canceled. Now, I have to salute Coda for lots of good ideas. I mean, it's evident in the website they've got a lot of good ideas, or they borrowed them from somebody. Unfortunately, they haven't been implemented in nerdly news this week, the iPhone was locked in exclusively to AT&T, but as you heard on the show several weeks ago, an enterprising college freshman with a soldering iron and some programming smarts unlocked the iPhone, and now the secretive iPhone dev team has released a software hack that also unlocks the phone without the soldering iron. Those who waited not only save the $200 on the cost of the iPhone since the price dropped, but they'll also be able to use their iPhone on AT&T's network, as Apple had intended them to, or on T-Mobile's network. Not Sprint, not anybody else. T-Mobile and AT&T are the only services that use the hardware required by the iPhone. So who is this iPhone dev team? Well, about a dozen participants, known only by their screen names. And it appears that they may be in Europe. Those who've seen the code in operation say that it works, even though the hack is less than 7K in size. The group has made the code available for free download, but the team members have asked that no direct links be provided to their website, so you won't find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. However, if you do a Google search for iPhone Dev Wiki, include the quotation marks around iPhone Dev Wiki, you'll find it. The website says this project is a community effort, and as such, we have no official leader. 
Updates on this wiki are written by those who have an understanding about the project status at the time of a release. If anything posted on this wiki gives the impression that one person is doing most of the work, it should be attributed to bad writing style only and in no way representative of the inner workings of the iPhone dev community. And for this one, I'm not sure whether I should be laughing or crying or maybe cringing. According to the General Accounting Office, you probably already know that FBI agents lose computers and guns. So it probably shouldn't come as a great surprise to find that the State Department can't seem to protect its computers from Russian hackers. Sophos says the website of the U.S. Consulate General in St. Petersburg, Russia, was loaded with malicious code as part of an iframe exploit that installed malware on visitors' systems. Now, the infected pages on that website have since been cleaned up. Sophos is an IT security firm headquartered in Boston. They say the attack was part of a larger campaign by cybercriminals. The State Department computer wasn't specifically targeted. It was just open and available. The computer was also in Russia, which is where most of the compromised pages were hosted. Principal virus researcher at Sophos, Fraser Howard, says the attack highlights the fact that no organization is immune from infection. High-profile sites, such as the U.S. consulate, are usually cleaned up pretty quickly, but Howard says that far too many companies fail to repair hacked sites. Probably don't even know about them. When run, the malware that was on the U.S. consulate's computer would attempt to load further malware from a remote server in Russia, and that malware included a piece that attempted to exploit several browser vulnerabilities in order to install a Trojan horse that could then be used to steal business-critical data and personal details. Sophos even provided a picture of the code, which looks a lot like an exploit that I noticed and posted information about a couple of weeks ago. As they used to say on Hill Street Blues, be careful out there. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 16th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.